You're listening to The 66, a podcast where we go through the books of the Bible one at a time in a three-step process we read, think, and apply. I'm Andrew Kingsley, co-podcasting alongside Drew Kaiser. We are the ministers at the Asheville Road Church of Christ in Leeds, Alabama, and we have a lot of fun recording this podcast. Oh yeah, no. is that is that my cue to come in? Sure, yeah, you can go right ahead. Yeah, it's it's fun. Yeah, I would. Yeah, it's good. I guess it's good for me because we this is stuff we do anyway. We sit around, yeah. and we have conversations about this kind of stuff, and it gives us a great chance to go through. You know, it's good for any ministers, I guess, that work in the same place to do to just sit down and discuss the Bible. Mm-hmm. So this is great because it gives us you know, an hour-ish to sit down once a week and -hmm. just talk about what the Bible says. And that's awesome. Uh, So I really enjoy doing this. And we hope that somebody out there is getting something out of this, whether you're teaching a class or whatever whatever it is you might be doing. And often, you know, we make discoveries while recording that we didn't think about, which is really neat. And there's been many times where I've seen you over there scribbling notes while I'm talking And uh, I've done the same thing, jotted down sermon ideas or things Mm -hmm. to remember for later. Just that came about by the conversation. So, hey, can I give a plug-in before? Oh, yeah, sure. Or just a plug. Yeah. Um, I've got a new book out called Christian Hope. It's available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or now in print edition, which uh, has just come off the press. Uh, it took us a lot longer to get the the print version ready, but it's now ready and can be ordered through Riddle Creek Publishing. You can get it at any Christian bookstore as well. Um, they may not know about it yet, so you let them know that uh, you've heard about it through me and uh, you know that you can get it through Riddle Creek Publishing. But the best way is probably just to go to uh, riddlecreekpublishing.com, look for contact information that you can order it. But uh, it's a 13-chapter book, can be used for Bible classes on hope, or it's uh, hopefully just interesting to sit down and read, and uh, we're trying to get the word out about it. It's I don't like to promote myself, mm-hmm. which is why one of the reasons why I don't sell many books, but yep. you know, I, I think that it's something that will be useful to a lot of people if they'll just pick it up and read it. Answers a lot of questions about uh, the basis for hope. Answers a lot of questions about the end of time, mm-hmm. which is something people are fascinated with. And uh, also has a lot of practical morality in it that is tied to hope. So uh, I'll probably plug that a few times in the next <laughs> several podcasts because I'm wanting to get the word out about it. And I know that uh, there may be somebody listening to this years after I mean, I hope these thing, these mm-hmm. recordings stay up for a long time. Years yeah. after this uh, broadcast, and uh, you know, you're thinking that mm-hmm. book came out five years ago or ten years ago. But um, I'll go ahead and say it now, and you know, yeah. maybe we'll plug it here and there. But yeah. uh, we're in the middle of John, or just at the beginning of John. Mm-hmm. And uh, the last episode, we talked about the prologue to John, which is chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. And at this point, I want to give you the overall outline for the book of John that we'll be following uh, throughout this whole study of John. 
It all starts with the letter P. And so chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, is going to be the prologue, as we talked about last episode. Picking up with verse 19 of chapter 1, going through the end of chapter 12, is going to be the public ministry. Chapters 13 through 17 is Jesus' private ministry. Chapters 18 through 20 is Jesus' passion ministry. And then the final chapter, uh, John chapter 21, we'll call that the... the um, postscript, just to keep with the P's, but what it is is an epilogue. So you have an introduction, a conclusion, you've got those three uh, parts of his ministry in between the public, the private, and the passion ministry. It's a very broad outline. It gives us a lot of freedom to play around Mm -hmm. with the divisions of the text. We talked about doing more than this, but what we're going to do today is just finish chapter 1. Yeah. And chapter 1 is all about testimonies, early testimonies of Jesus, beginning with John and then some of the uh, apostles. So uh, we'll get right into the reading with that, starting with the testimony, number 1, of John the Baptist. That's chapter 1, verses 19 and following. And uh, John is questioned by folks that uh, John John the Apostle refers to as Jews, and later he identifies this as the Pharisees in verse 24. But they're going to give John the Baptist two questions beginning in verse 19. And the first line of question has to do with John's identity. So verse 19 says, This is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? So they're trying uh, to get at his identity there. He confessed and did not deny but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, Who then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So the first line of questioning had to do with his identity. And he quotes uh, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, and says, Basically, I'm the forerunner of the Lord. Mm-hmm. We'll talk more about that later. Then the second line of questioning has to do with John's activity, what he's, what he's doing out here in the wilderness. He is uh, just west of the Jordan River in this wilderness area. And that word wilderness does not necessarily mean desert, although some translations may word it desert. It just means uh, there are no establishments, no housing You know, it's out in the wild is Mm -hmm. probably the way we would put it, the wilderness. Um, So, um, you know, they they interrogate him a second time having to do with his activity. Um, Verse 25, they asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. So no response to the question there, only testimony about Jesus, the one who would follow, saying, I am lesser than he, he is greater than me. And that's how he answered that question. Then he gets into his testimony, and uh, we have that in verses 29 and following. And he says several things here that I want to return to in the application section because I think um, that would probably be the best applications that we could give 
in this particular section of Scripture having to do with mm-hmm. the testimony about Jesus and who he really is. John yeah. the Baptist gives us some good stuff here. First of all, he says he's the Lamb of God. Uh, verse 29, The next day he saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So first of all, he is the Lamb of God. Mm-hmm. Secondly, he testifies that he is the Son of God. Look at verse 32. Uh, John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So secondly, he says he's the Son of God. So those are the testimonies of John. Let's go secondly to the testimony of Andrew, one of Jesus' first followers and and one named as an apostle at a later date. Uh, Andrew's testimony was that Jesus was the Messiah. So we have this uh, beginning of verse 40. One of the two who heard John speak That means Andrew was a disciple of John before he was a disciple of Jesus. Mm -hmm. Um, And followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, So you're Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. So Andrew's testimony was that Jesus is the Messiah. And we also have a little bit about Peter in there. And the nickname that uh, Jesus gave him, his real, his given name was Simon. Jesus gave him the name Peter or Cephas, which means rock, stone. And it mm-hmm. uh, suggests that Peter is going to be a stabilizing force in Jesus' kingdom. Okay, mm-hmm. so the, the next testimony comes from Philip. And uh, Philip is uh, described in verses 30, uh, 43 and following. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael. Oh, whoops. I should have uh, broken that down. But uh, there's Philip's testimony. And, um, well, we have his testimony there, even though it's talking about Nathanael. So his testimony is in verse 45. We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So Philip's testimony was that Jesus was the one of whom the Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote. And there are over 300 Messianic prophecies in the Old Testament, and this is what Philip is talking about, that. Uh, You know, there's a line in Revelation 19 that says, The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. That's Revelation 19, verse 10. And... uh, Philip had that sense. That was basically his testimony about Jesus. Mm-hmm. And then uh, we have the testimony of Nathaniel. Um, Nathaniel's introduced to us in verse 45. That's what got me mixed up. But um, his testimony begins in verse 46. Nathaniel, and this is probably the same man as Bartholomew. Uh, some lists have Nathaniel. Some lists of the apostles have Bartholomew. So we we decide mm-hmm. it's probably the same guy. Okay. But... um. Nathanael said, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming towards him and said, Behold an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael said, How do you know me? 
Jesus said, Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus said, uh, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So there's a lot there. The testimony um, of Nathaniel was that he, he repeats the testimony of John that he's the Son of God. But the new testimony he gives is that he is the King of Israel. I say new, but it's very similar to what Andrew said in saying that he was the Messiah. So that ends chapter 1, and you see a lot of testimony about Jesus. And we'll go back over that practically, you know, in the last part of the part of the podcast. But that finishes our reading so far in the at the end of uh, John chapter 1. Yeah, and I don't want to jump ahead to the next section <clears throat> where, we, where we, you know, kind of dive into some of the stuff a little bit deeper. Uh, but what do you think about John's exclusion of Jesus' baptism here. I mean, I know it's kind of alluded to with well, John talking about the Spirit descending. Yeah, that's a, that's a good question, I think, and I noticed that as well. But you have to remember what we said in the last episode that, you know, John John was familiar with Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and mm-hmm. he didn't set out to repeat what had already been done probably yeah. decades before. That had been written... He was more interested in testimony. Um, You know, he was more interested... You know, he only includes seven signs or miracles. But he said, you know, near the end of the book that, you know, there were so many miracles that all the books of the world couldn't hold them. So I think he he was just more interested in the testimony here than he was in the works. And that's why you don't read about, you know, the works of John the Baptist and the baptizing that he did in the wilderness. Is that that what you meant? Yeah, I was just curious as to why, you know, he he kind of alludes to it there, talking about the Spirit coming down, but, you know, it doesn't say, and then John baptized Jesus. It just seems like Mm -hmm. something easy to put in there. But but I do think what you're saying, uh, John being familiar with the synoptics, or, you know, as we call them today, the synoptic Gospels, Mm -hmm. Uh, and then coming after that, I think that definitely makes sense. But this I'm... is new in verse 33, that God had spoken to him and said, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. Um, in Matthew, for instance, he says, There's one coming after me who will baptize with the with the Spirit and with fire. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he got that knowledge from somewhere, but... He tells us about the voice that spoke to him in John 1. And we don't, that, that's kind of something new. And oh, yeah. the little piece of information that the Spirit not only descended on Jesus, but remained on Jesus, that also is new information that I don't believe is included in the Synoptic Gospels. Mm-hmm.
back and uh, we're going to think a little more deeply about some of these things. You were probably wondering as we were going through the reading, are they going to come back to that? Uh, I'd like to know more about that. And we may be able to get into all the things that you hope we will talk about and maybe not. Because even though this is just a few verses that we have covered, there, there are so many deep things going on here. And this is the frustrating thing about the Gospel of John. I mean, it's, it's, it's a book that promotes discussion. And uh, that's why it's good to study with somebody the Gospel of John. But there is not enough time. John said there are not enough books to hold the signs of Christ. There's not enough time to talk about all the things that John brings up. And so we're just going to scratch the surface, I'm afraid. But one of the questions that comes up a lot about John 1 is this interrogation with John the Baptist that we read about at the beginning of the reading, where they're asking him, basically, you know, first of all, he starts out saying, I'm not the Christ. And so they say, well, who are you then? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? What is that all about? And uh, some of this has to do with the history that's going on right now. At this time, the Jews have been subjugated by Rome for about a hundred years. Mm-hmm. Uh not too long before that, they had temporarily regained their independence through the Maccabees. And uh, the Maccabean revolt was successful, but short-lived. And mm-hmm. so, you know, I don't know, 60, 80, 100 years, they've been under Rome's control. And they were looking for another Maccabean revolt. And there were a lot of prophecies because of this desire that were being repeated and taught to their children and brought up in the synagogues Sabbath after Sabbath. And these prophecies involved the prophet or Elijah or even the Messiah, the Christ, which, by the way, those two words mean the same thing. Mm -hmm. So John comes in. He's someone special. And now John, um, John didn't do signs. He didn't do miracles. He was a prophet, You know, we Mm -hmm. talked in the last segment about how God had spoken directly to him. So that's unusual. But uh, he didn't work signs the way that Jesus will see Jesus working signs. But there was something special about him, and he was transitional, and, and he was some kind of a pioneer of something they knew. So they started asking him these things to find out who he was. And he heads them off of the past with this first one, I am not the Christ. So... They're thinking there about, no doubt, some things that you read in Daniel, you know, about the Messiah. I think Daniel's the only prophet that uses the term Messiah, really. But uh, the anointed one. And we'll say more about that in the application section. Mm -hmm. So uh, they go to Elijah now. Now, why are they talking about Elijah? Well, um, you know, the Old Testament closes with Elijah. A promise that Elijah is coming. Mm-hmm. That's the last prophecy that they have heard was that yeah. Elijah's coming back. Now I'm talking about Malachi chapter 4 verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet, prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So they're thinking the great and awesome day of the Lord is going to be the time when Rome 
is kicked out of Jerusalem. Yeah. We regain our independence. And right before that, Elijah is going, going to come back. And when, what they mean by that is a resurrection of Elijah, the guy yeah. with the camel hair <laughs> and the, um, the leather belt. That yeah. guy. Yeah. Which John dressed like that. You know, mm-hmm. he looked like Elijah in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. I think it's interesting too that Elijah never "quote unquote" died. You know, he was yeah, taken right. up yeah. into heaven. So they're thinking, okay, Elijah's just going to come back. You know, he was exactly. taken up. God's going to give him back to us for a while for this day of the Lord, and then we're going to be good. So it's misleading to say that they were <clears throat> looking for a resurrection. Because a resurrection implies a death, and Elijah never died. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things that made them look for him, in addition to the prophecy, is he never died. So he's out there somewhere, Mm -hmm. you know, God's sending him back for another special purpose, a pivotal time. Yeah. Um, But John the Baptist quickly brushes them off and says, I'm not Elijah. Mm -hmm. Now, this is interesting for another reason. And that is that in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus tells everybody that John is Elijah. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he says in Matthew 11, verse 11, Among those born of women there is arisen no one greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist unto now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence. And then he goes on to say, verse 13, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. So do we have a contradiction here? Because Jesus said he is Elijah, and John confessed, I'm not Elijah. Mm-hmm. Which is it? Well, I think uh, the answer to that comes in what the Pharisees were expecting when they asked that question. You know, I think they were asking, you know, are you are you Elijah? Like, literally, are you Elijah? You know, the guy that was taken up into heaven. Mm-hmm. And now, are you back? Is this, is this you? And, of course, John is not, because John is John the Baptist. He's not actually uh, physically John. He's a separate entity from, from Elijah the prophet. Yeah, and I think if you look back in Luke chapter 1, where Luke is writing about... Uh, the occasion where the angel of the Lord appears to Zechariah and is telling him that John the Baptist is going to be born. Uh, In verse 16, he says, He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And so the idea is definitely John is not the like the actual Elijah, but he has come in the spirit of Elijah. He has come to fulfill that role. Mm-hmm. Uh, like Jesus says in Matthew 11, the Elijah who was to come or who is to come. Yeah, the prophetic Elijah. Yeah. yeah the, symbol, the, the symbol Elijah, yeah. the spirit of Elijah. Yeah. One of the things, and, and uh, I don't know if you agree with me on this, but... One of the things about Elijah was that he was succeeded by someone greater than he. Yeah. Uh, in that, Elisha received a double portion of his spirit. And that's mm-hmm. one of the things that Elijah came to signify was a 
a person who prepares the world for someone greater than he. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, the Malachi prophecy says, first Elijah, then the great day of the Lord. And so now they're looking for, you know, the man Elijah. And John is not that man, but he is. he has come in the spirit of Elijah, which he tries to communicate to them. I mean, he says... In answer to their question, basically he throws out the Isaiah passage, makes straight the paths for the Lord, mm-hmm. uh, the way of the Lord. Uh, in, in other words, he's preparing the way for one greater than he. And then he gets into the sandal stuff. You know, I'm not worthy to untie sandals, the guy who's coming after me. Mm-hmm. So he does say, he says both, I am not Elijah, and he says, I am Elijah, mm-hmm. in the same way. But he's... He, yeah. he knows that if he said, yes, you got it, I'm Elijah, that they're mm-hmm. going to start worshiping him as Elijah back from the whirlwind. I almost mm-hmm. said back from the dead. Yeah. So in order to communicate properly to them what was going on, he said no, because they were asking, you know, it would be like if somebody said, well, there's a lot of confusion about the Antichrist. Yeah. And if somebody who opposed Christ, who said, you know, the biblical, this may be a bad analogy because I've got to give so much explanation, but in the letters of John, John says the Antichrist is the guy who says that Jesus did not come in the flesh. Mm-hmm. And there are many Antichrists, and the spirit of the Antichrist has been in the world since the beginning. Yeah, That's what John said. But today, the popular theory about the Antichrist is that it's a particular political person mm-hmm. that's going to fool everybody into following him and then wage Armageddon against Christ and his forces at the end of time. Yeah. So if there was somebody, it would be kind of akin to somebody who doesn't believe Jesus came in the flesh and so is scripturally the Antichrist, like John explained him. Mm-hmm. But somebody comes to him and says, are you the Antichrist? And he says no to them because they have the idea, the fictional idea of the Antichrist in mind. And while he does oppose Christ and he's against Christ, he's not the Antichrist in that sense. That would be kind of analogous to what John is doing here with Elijah. Yeah, I think that makes sense. It's It's the spirit behind who he is. He's come to fulfill that prophecy, but he's John. He's not Elijah. He has come to fulfill the prophecy made about Elijah. But like we said, you know, he's not actually back down from another whirlwind yeah. to uh you know, not the same human. It's a different guy born he's born uh, Luke chapter one tells you he's born uh from Zechariah and Elizabeth. Mm-hmm. Okay. And uh there's another thing they ask him, are you the prophet? Uh this refers back to Deuteronomy uh, 18, yeah, Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 18, where there's a promise made that a prophet like Moses is coming. So they ask him a couple questions, and it's really, this question is pretty much the exact same thing as asking him whether or not he's the Christ. You know, so it's almost yeah. like, uh, I don't know if they're trying to trick him by asking him a question the same way, but. Well, I'm not ways. sure they realize that the Christ and the prophet are the same person. Okay. I'm not sure they they realize that. I think they have all these theories worked out. Again, this is kind of like our end-time prophets that we have today who come up with all this fiction about the end of time. 
Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, they they come up with all these ideas and define these things very sharply that aren't defined. That mm-hmm. kind of have rough edges in Scripture and are a bit ambiguous. They they sharpen up the definition to make good movies and books and fiction yeah. and sell, sell stuff. And so I think they kind of did that around Jesus' day. There was a... Apocalyptic literature was very popular. There's a mm-hmm. lot of non-inspired apocalyptic literature that was written in the intertestamental period of time. A lot of rabbinical literature that went into de- detail about, you know, these things. Mm-hmm. And uh, if we had done our homework, maybe we could have dig up some examples yeah. where they distinguish the prophet from the Messiah. Like we I'm said, just we guessing, come but, up with stuff while we while we do the podcast. Yeah, we have new ideas well, as some, we go along. I, I, you know, when Jesus was, uh, you know, when Jesus was uh, feeding the five thousand, some exclaimed in John six fourteen, "This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world," and. Uh, you know, they tried to make him a king after that, and he withdrew yeah. from them. Which is kind of similar to John's attitude here. They were right, but they were wrong. They were right in identifying him as the prophet Messiah, mm-hmm. but then they were wrong because they wanted him to be a prophet Messiah over the physical kingdom of Israel, and mm-hmm. he had come to establish, as he told Pontius Pilate, a spiritual kingdom. Yeah, and that's something actually Nathaniel says. Then he says, "You are the king of Israel." Yeah, he yeah. calls him the king of Israel. Right, right, right. Yeah, so it's kind of the Pharisees here fall into the same trap that even the disciples or the apostles themselves are under for most of mm-hmm. I think Jesus's ministry. They think he's until be like, when he's ascending into heaven. They're like, "Is yeah. this is this when it's going to happen? Yeah. Are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel?" Yeah, and you know. Mm-hmm. You know, Jesus is just thinking, uh, I'm going to have to send the Holy Spirit. Because, <laughs> you know, they yeah. just don't get it. And uh, they wouldn't have gotten it if they had not seen what they had seen. And if they yeah. had not received the Spirit, that we'll go into a lot more detail about when we get to John chapters 14 through 16. Yeah, The helper, the comforter, the paraclete that comes mm-hmm. and guides them into all the truth. Yeah. And I think it makes sense when you, I mean, to us, it's you. we think, how could they have missed that? But like you were talking about with the Maccabean Revolt and everything right before this, I mean, this was, you know, that was how they were raised. That was their culture. That's what was, they were yeah. looking for. That, That's their bedtime stories. Yeah. They're looking for the promise that was made to David way back when, you mm-hmm. know, that someone's going to sit on your throne and not be taken off of it. And so that's, you know, I guess they didn't have the, the wisdom or the insight, uh, only a few people did, I guess, uh, those that were chosen by God himself knew what was really meant by those prophecies. But you can, I think you can plainly see how they could have gotten mixed up and hung up on the wrong things, at least for a while. And after a while, I mean, some of the things that Christ does or some of the things that he says, do you think they would pick up on yeah. the fact that he's not there to, uh, he's not yeah. there to just be a king. But right. that's some pretty interesting stuff just packed right there into those. You know, they, he asked him three questions, and then those three questions is loaded with all of that history mm-hmm. about Israel and the prophecies and the law and all those different things. Um, like you said, John's very deep, covers a lot of deep things in just a few, a right. few short verses. Yeah. 
Well, let's move into something else about John the Baptist. I know this is a little confusing for our listeners because John the Apostle wrote this about John the Baptist. And when we say John the Baptist, we're not declaring his denomination. Uh, Baptist, there is a title that is meant to refer to his work of immersing people in the Jordan River. Mm -hmm. Some people say John the Immerser, you know, to clarify it, but I I think we all understand that this predates the Baptist Church. Oh, yeah. Um, So John the Baptist was known (laughs) for that. There's a couple of things that we wanted to talk about regarding his baptism. Uh, First of all, you know, why was John baptizing people whenever Christian baptism had not yet been established and would not be established until after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection because Christian baptism is symbolic of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, Romans 6, 3, and 4. So what is John doing? Mm -hmm. And, you know, John the Apostle doesn't go into detail about it, so we have to go to other texts, other gospel writers, to kind of analyze the baptism of John and what it was all about. Yeah. Uh, Really, I guess, this, this is one of the questions I had from just... A few hours ago, when I was sitting down researching, getting ready for this uh, discussion that we're having, um, you know, wh- why exactly did John need to baptize? Why couldn't he just get up and tell people, "Christ is coming. Be ready. Here comes Christ." You know, what's the significance of the baptism? And uh, really, I guess uh, what you see here is that it's to prepare the way for Christ. It really is. Ezekiel. Has a couple uh, Ezekiel thirty six twenty five and thirty seven twenty three uh, kind of make some prophecies about a time of cleansing before Christ comes, and um, Kaufman ties that in to John the Baptist baptizing before Christ comes. But you can look at what John himself says, verse thirty three: uh, He who sent me to baptize with water said to me. Uh, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with all the Spirit. Um, so God sent him to baptize with water. And then you look in verse 31, he tells you why. Uh, For this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel, he being the Christ. Mm-hmm. So for whatever reason, that baptism reveals uh, in some way you know, according yeah. to those words of John right well, there. Well, it reminds me of Paul, what Paul told the uh, disciples in Ephesus, the 12 guys he ran into in um, Acts chapter 19 who had never heard of the Holy Spirit before. Mm-hmm. These are disciples. They're named disciples. We assume disciples of Christ, but they'd never heard of the Holy Spirit. Uh, he was going to offer to lay his hands on them and impart uh, spiritual gifts. We'll talk about that in a moment in connection with the baptism of Jesus, but um, you know, he he says they say they'd never heard of the Holy Spirit. They apparently had received John's baptism after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and the establishment of Christian baptism. And he says, you know, John, what do you have it there? Yeah, you, you turn. So, what does yeah. he tell them exactly about John's baptism? He says, uh, John baptized with the baptism of repentance telling people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that okay. is Jesus. All right, all right. So John's baptism, by nature, and this kind of reflects what you read a moment ago from John 1, looked forward to a Messiah. 
And that's okay. why it was wrong for them to receive it, because in, in submitting to John's baptism, it was like saying that Jesus of Nazareth was not the Christ. Mm-hmm. So Christian baptism looks backward, John's baptism looks forward, but that wasn't the only purpose of John's baptism. You know, so what we see in Acts 19 and in John 1 is one of the purposes, which was that it was forward-looking, but then Mark gives us more detail in Mark 1, verses 4 and 5. And this has to do with the Ezekiel prophecy about the cleansing, I think. Mm -hmm. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So this baptism not just looked said... Uh, your sins will be washed away in the blood of one who is to come. But it also was a baptism that required um, repentance. And um, verse 5 tells us they were confessing their sins when they came to John in the yeah. wilderness. And and it was for the forgiveness of sins. So mm-hmm. people ask sometimes, you know, did the apostles and other disciples of John need to be rebaptized? in the Christian age after the church was established? And the answer mm-hmm. to the question is no, they didn't, because they received a baptism that was right in its time mm-hmm. that was about the forgiveness of sins, like Christian baptism is. Mm-hmm. Now, after its time had passed, it was wrong for people to receive that baptism, because it was still saying, go look forward, look forward, the Messiah is coming. Yeah. And the I think the X factor about the next baptism, like you were talking about right there in Acts, was it 16 that we were talking about? 19. 19, was the Holy Spirit. Now, those apostles got the Holy Spirit. Uh, you know, they received it in Acts 2. So I think that was the, you know, that was, I don't want to say the missing ingredient, but almost, you know, that's what it was. They didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit according to John's baptism. Mm-hmm. Um, but it kind of, well, Christian baptism, you know, go, comes with the gift of the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, Peter says in Acts two thirty eight, "Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit." Yeah. So, how can you be baptized with Christian baptism and never hear of the Holy Spirit? Yeah, that's that's the point I'm trying to make. Is those yeah. guys didn't have the Christian baptism because they had never heard of them. Holy Spirit. Okay, since you brought that up, let's go quickly into the next point. Okay. Measures of the Holy Spirit, because uh, we've got to talk about that. We're probably confusing people with all this talk. John says something really interesting, and I said in the last segment that, you know, we get this from John and not from the others, that this voice spoke to him and said, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. So the Spirit, you know, we know from the other accounts that he descended in the form of a dove on Christ. But John says he didn't just descend, he remained on Christ. Yeah. And we want to put that together with something in John chapter 3, verse 34, which says, He whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he, that is the Father, gives the Spirit, we assume, to him without measure. So that seems to suggest, and uh, other translations are clearer on this point than the ESV that I just read from, but suggests that Jesus had the Spirit without measure, to the fullest extent, with no limits whatsoever. Mm -hmm. So that also introduces the idea that there are measures of the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, he wouldn't say that. 
if everybody received the Spirit at the same level, then that would not make any sense at all. But he's saying Jesus had the Spirit at a level higher and without limit than anybody else that has ever come. So yeah. he, the Spirit descended and remained on him, and then he baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now that suggests another measure of the Holy Spirit. That is the measure of the Holy Spirit received by those baptized by the Holy Spirit. Those would be the apostles mm-hmm. yeah. and possibly the household of Cornelius. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you have those two instances in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 10. That's, I would say, the next level down of the measure of the Holy Spirit. That would give them the ability to work miracles, speak in tongues, and in the case of the apostles, to lay their hands on others to impart spiritual gifts, mm-hmm. to impart gifts in the plural, gifts of the Holy Spirit, which gives us a third level of the Holy Spirit. Next tier down would be those Christians whom, upon whom the apostles laid their hands and gave them the power to uh, work miracles. Uh, those Christians would have another measure of the Holy Spirit, not quite to the level of the apostles, certainly okay. not to the level of Jesus, but a level higher than what we have. What we have you might style the ordinary measure of the Holy Spirit, which is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, a non-miraculous measure of the Holy Spirit, described in Acts 2.38, described in Romans chapter 8, verse 11, um, and uh, Romans chapter 8, verses 15 through 17, Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and following, and uh, 1 Corinthians mm-hmm. 6, verses 19 through 20. You know, there are a lot of passages that say that every Christian has the Spirit dwelling in him. It doesn't mean every Christian can speak in tongues and every Christian can work miracles or lay their hands on others and impart spiritual gifts or that every Christian has the baptism of the Holy Spirit. What it means is we have the ordinary measure of the Spirit in us. So there's four different categories. Mm -hmm. Jesus, the apostles, the early Christians in the miraculous age, and then us. Uh, measures of the Spirit. That's suggested, you know, by John one thirty three and John three thirty four. Yeah, and that uh, that kind of that other tier you were talking about really fits those guys in Ephesus, I guess, where Paul lays his hands on them. Yeah, I was thinking about yeah, them yeah. as you were talking about. Uh, See, you know, the Paul apostles. was an apostle. Yeah, and I was thinking about them with the house of Cornelius as well. But I guess these guys here in Ephesus. Paul lays his hands on them, and they get the Holy Spirit. So that would have been similar to the people, I guess, in Corinth. Mm-hmm. Corinth, that yes, have the yeah, Holy Spirit. Okay, yeah, I would say, and and there 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 are so many passages that spell this out for us that miraculous gifts were passed from the apostles to others, and that's the only way that they received them. Except in the case of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which happened only in Acts two and Acts ten. Like you've got Acts chapter eight where Philip converts a number of Samaritans, and then he has to call Peter and John. Now Philip was working miracles, but he he wasn't an apostle. This isn't Philip mm-hmm. the apostle, um, not the Philip we've been reading about here in um, John one. Mm-hmm. He has to call Peter and John from Jerusalem to come down and lay their hands on people so that they can impart spiritual gifts. Mm-hmm. And then, like you mentioned, Acts nineteen, Paul was investigating to see whether these people had received the Holy Spirit so they could work spiritual gifts. And then in Romans 1, Paul is talking about his plans to visit Rome, and he says, you know, I haven't been able to come yet, 
And verse 11, he says, I'd like to come so that I can impart some spiritual gift to you. Mm-hmm. You know, so there's another example. Anyway, we need to move on from this, but yeah. uh, that's an interesting idea. Let's just uh, talk about one more thing, and then and then we'll get into um, we'll we'll take a break and get into our application. And that's Nathaniel, and the, you know, there's a whole podcast here for Nathaniel. Yeah, because there's so many things that Nathaniel says and that Jesus says that you know they they just don't you know we could discuss forever what they meant by that. And, um, you know, I love... I want to know what Nathaniel was doing under the fig tree. He must have been doing something that um, was important for him to be struck by Jesus saying this. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm guessing that he was under the fig tree pondering the Messiah or, you know, praying to God that the Messiah would come. He had some spiritual moment, some some kind of private, intimate moment with God under mm-hmm. the fig tree, and Jesus, you know, says, "I saw, I saw that yeah. when you were there alone doing that one thing that only you and me know about." Yeah, and the rest of what we're, you know, John records it, and doesn't tell us what it is. Yeah, but that that thing that you were doing. I saw it, and I know all about it. It's kind of like where he says he Jesus bends over and writes something in the, in the ground, yeah. and it never tells you what he wrote. I know. Yeah, so John, something. what are you doing? Yeah. But I don't know that John knew yeah. what Nathaniel... It was private. Yeah, but, that is true. You know, and we, jumping to a practical application here, God sees us. He knows mm-hmm. us, which is something that should both bring comfort and fear into our hearts. Yeah. I mean, this, you know... Mm-hmm. It's comforting to know that when we're in pain, he has the hairs on our head numbered. But it's also, you know, fearful to contemplate that he sees every secret sin as well. Yeah. But Nathaniel wasn't sinning under the fig tree. It was something good. And it got his attention. And, um, you know, I wanted to talk about this fig tree knowledge because somebody asked me one time, how do you say the miracle in John 2 is the first miracle? Well, you know, because uh, Jesus said that I saw you under the fig tree, is that not miraculous to be able to see people when you're not right there in front of them? Mm-hmm. Well, the miracle in Cana of Galilee is called the first of his signs in John chapter 2, verse 11. Yeah. So, I mean, it's you know, if you say that's not the first of the signs, then... You're contradicting John. But it is miraculous to be able to see somebody. And I think there's a distinction being made here between the omniscience of Jesus and signs of Jesus, which are miracles that begin and end. I mean, Mm -hmm. he doesn't turn off his omniscience. Yeah. He's not like, well, I'm going to sit down and be omniscient for a little while and see Mm -hmm. people under fig trees. Yeah. Um. He has, that's infinite in its quality. It doesn't stop. Mm -hmm. So he can always do that. So that doesn't count as a sign. And I'm doing air quotes for Mm -hmm. our listeners. It doesn't count as a sign. But the miracle, you know, at Cana was something that, you know, he turned on and then turned off. Yeah. Uh, He's not making water into wine all the time. Yeah. But he is knowing everything that is possible to know all the time. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a good distinction. 
Yeah. Whew. I talked a lot in that section. Sorry. <laughs> I don't know. Because you have more knowledge than I do on that stuff. No. But you do you want to add anything else? Man, we're at, we're running long here. So let's take a break. Yeah. Come back. Do some uh, uh, application and close out the podcast. some practical application on some of the things that we've studied, namely three descriptions of Christ that we find in this section. Uh, These descriptions of Christ are are really helpful, and I think uh, we get a lot out of them practically. Although they are, like everything else in John, they're deep, so they require a little Mm -hmm. discussion. Not too much, because we're running out of time here. Uh, First of all, You have John's testimony about Jesus in verse 29, and I think it's repeated again. But behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Uh, That is a complex of ideas that God has spent centuries embedding into the minds of the Jews. Mm -hmm. Starting with the Passover. During the Passover, a lamb was sacrificed the I'm talking about the tenth plague here. The blood of the mm-hmm. lamb was applied to the doorposts, and the angel of death passed over the houses where that blood was applied to the doorposts. Mm-hmm. And that event was commemorated in the Passover feasts that followed in perpetuity after that. Mm-hmm. So a lamb was always sacrificed there to show atonement, uh, the death passing over. Then you have that prophecy in Isaiah 53, which describes the Messiah or the servant, the suffering servant of the Lord, as a lamb led to the slaughter, silent before his shearers. And the idea of a substitutionary sacrifice is very much a part of that in Isaiah 53. Uh, The you know, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Our iniquities have been laid on him. He dies in our place. And then the language takes away the sins of the world reflects back on the Day of Atonement. Mm-hmm. Leviticus chapter 16, where two goats are sacrificed. One is slaughtered, the other is led out into the wilderness and let go, signifying that the sins that he's carrying the sins away from the camp, away Mm -hmm. from the nation, taking away the sins, bearing the sins. So that's called the scapegoat. So the Paschal Lamb or the Passover Lamb, the Lamb of Isaiah 53, and the scapegoat are all embedded in one sentence, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Mm -hmm. Pretty effective sermon. People, I bet, wish that you know, in my sermons, I could say as much in as few words. <laughs> but it takes centuries, like I said, yeah. centuries of instruction through the Old Testament for that to have the weight that it has. Yeah. You know. Uh, so that's the first uh, description of Jesus as the Lamb of God. 
Then you've got the second description that comes up with um, who? We had a couple of people. Well, John John the Baptist says this one too: the Son of God. He's talking mm-hmm. about the baptism, and he says, "You know, I realize that this is the Son of God." But then also, um, was it Nathaniel? Yeah, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. Verse forty-nine, mm-hmm. Nathaniel. So what does that mean, Son of God? Um, this this one has perplexed me for a while. I, you know, I know you've studied Hebrew mm-hmm. a little. I have not studied it much at all. But I correct me if I'm wrong. There are very few adjectives, if any, in Hebrew, right? Uh, you know, I. I'm Sorry, I just not, dropped that on you. Yeah, I'm not really sure. It's been a long time since I've, and I hope my Hebrew professor from college didn't listen to this. But yeah, uh, Maybe actually, fell asleep at this point. Nobody's listening at this point. Yeah, uh, you know, in Hebrew, I'm not sure that there are. Um, I don't think there are many adjectives. And I'll take the blame if I'm wrong about this, but um, it's not adjective heavy like English is. Mm-hmm. And so they had this habit of describing things, like if they wanted to characterize somebody as having a particular attribute, they would say that he is the son of that thing. Mm-hmm. Like Barnabas was called by the apostles in Acts 4 the son of encouragement. Yeah. Well, that means he was an encouraging person. Yeah, that's right, uh, because there are. There are like guys that were big and and uh, they were called like people that would fall on other people or something like that. They weren't called very big or very large. Oh, that's strange. They were called so some idiom. Yeah, they were called the falling guy. ones, and that's well, that's a different discussion for another time. But yeah, that's that's the only thing I'm thinking of. Well, I know Judas Iscariot's another example in John 12. He's called the son of destruction. Yeah, and John has actually got a lot of Hebrew. Possibly Hebrew slash Jewish idioms, and we've already seen one of them. Mm-hmm. It's where John uh, writes that uh, John the Baptist, he says he confessed, he did not deny, but confessed. And that's mm-hmm. kind of a, oh, that's another Hebrew Jewish kind of idiom Josephus uses it a few times. Huh. It kind of emphasizes things. Yeah. Well, I think that's involved in Son of God. I don't, mm-hmm. you know, I I don't think it means that. He is the son, the way that, I have to be very careful here, in the same way that I'm the son of my father. Yeah. I'm the son of my father in that I did not exist before my father. I did not exist before my birth, but my father, along with my mother, brought me into being. Yeah. And so, I am the son of my father in a way differently than... Jesus is the Son of God. Yeah. One of the things, there are two things that are being signified here, but one of the things is his deity. It's a declaration that he is God. Mm -hmm. To say he's the Son of God. Oh, yeah. It's not just the descendant of God. That is not the meaning of the term. Yeah. However, he is the Son in the sense that he's submissive to the Father he plays the role of a submissive son. Yeah. Not that he was, and I'm trying to stay away from begotten because there's a whole debate about monogenes and the only begotten son versus, you know, unique son, only son. Yeah. Get into that in John 3, 16. Mm-hmm. But um, for right now, he wasn't begotten in the sense that he was 
brought into being at some point in history. Jesus is eternal. That's what we covered last episode. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Yeah. But he does say several times in John, in John 5 he says this, in John 14.10 he says this, that he didn't do anything by his own authority, but whatever the Father told him to do, that's what he spoke and that's what he did. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, he is the Son of God. Yeah. So again, we see a description that is loaded with information. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a good distinction to draw out. Uh, the last one is Christ, Messiah, Anointed One, King. I'm putting all those together. Uh mm-hmm. Now, who says that? Um, So, Andrew finds Peter, and he says, We have found the Messiah, verse 41. And then uh, Nathanael, who gave us Son of God, also calls him the King of Israel, verse 49. Mm -hmm. And uh, John the Baptist uh, said he was not the Christ, verse 20, which is kind of a way of saying the one after me is. Yeah. All those terms, Christ and Messiah... Christ is from the Greek Christos, Mm -hmm. which is equivalent to the Hebrew Messiah, which Mm -hmm. translated means anointed one, which in its significance means king. Yeah. Because kings were anointed. Yeah. So all those terms have to do with the same thing. And what they mean practically is that Jesus is the Lord of our lives. He is our ruler. He establishes a kingdom in which we are to serve Mm-hmm. and be submissive to him. Yeah. And he is something that's really cool about all this for me is you know right now we're doing uh our big congregation study on going back and looking at people in the Old Testament that were chosen that were anointed by God and yeah. it's really just neat to me to see that Christ is fulfilling all of that stuff. You know, mm-hmm. he is now the one that has, you know, the whole testament has been building up for this anointed one, the chosen one, or whatever, is is coming at some point, and now, you know, this is him, and he fulfills, like you said, uh, that God spent centuries uh, ingraining in these people's minds. You know, like that phrase, "the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world." Mm-hmm. Um, all of those images, all of those prophecies, all of those, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years of this kind of stuff is finally being brought to fulfillment here in Christ. And yeah. it's just it's incredible in and of itself and then obviously um the applications on us are are you know we could be here all day talking right. about how Jesus as the king of our lives applies to us. Yeah. Well, that's all the time that we have. Thank you for joining us on the 66. You can look us up on the internet at the 66.net. Twitter handle, The66Podcast. You can email us at akingsley at arcoc.com or dkaiser at arcoc.com. We're really enjoying the study of John. Join us next time. We'll get into Chapter 2.